Behind every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown. A behind-the-scenes look at new flavors and the chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders who create them with your host, Emmanuel. Imagine a place where you can listen to trendy chefs and bartenders sharing their secrets behind the scenes, where they are talking about their paths to success, where you can get tricks from the kitchen or from behind the bar. In fact, you can get it all here on my podcast, Flavors Unknown. I am your host, Emmanuel Roche. Thank you very much for listening today. Every other week, I interview chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders to discover their secrets behind the scenes. Today is episode number 12. And as usual, you can find the show notes at flavorsunknown.com. Click on the episode page. Today, my guest is Sam Mason, the pastry and ice cream chef, the mastermind behind Odd Fellows in Brooklyn, Manhattan, and soon in Boston. A series of stores offering premium small batch ice cream with a daily changing flavors on the menus. Hey, hi, Sam. How are you today? How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm, I'm really excited to have you on uh, Flavors Unknown. I'm very happy to be here on such a cold day. It's a, exactly. I don't, know how, I don't know how you got here on such a cold day. I would have stayed home. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, I, I wanted to have the chance to uh, interview you. And uh, it's uh, kind of a premiere today because it's uh, the first time I'm doing one face to face. Yeah, live. Well, I guess they're always live. but This is more uh, intimate. And at least I, I see the people like in front of me, which is, you know, you, right, right. which is cool. You see all of our silly facial expressions. <laughs> exactly. Sam, I'm, I'm really intrigued every time I come to your store here in Odd Fellows in Brooklyn or the one in Manhattan. There's always crazy combinations that you are coming up with. But 80%, you know, that of like the ice cream industry is like vanilla, strawberry, yeah. chocolate. So how do you come up with those strange flavor combinations like uh, chorizo caramel ice cream or miso cherry or blending tobacco and smoked chili and huckleberry? Well, like you said, a majority of our ice cream is going to be vanilla and chocolate and strawberry, pretty much Neapolitan, separated Neapolitan. But I mean, you know, we obviously make the crazier flavors because I make them because of, I, I, for selfish reasons, I think. I make them for myself and I hope that people obviously enjoy them. But for the most part, I think I go out of my way to engage myself, I think, which sounds awful, but you know what I mean? It's like if I, like with the uh, chorizo caramel, it's something you see, you know, you see chorizo, you, you, you know what chorizo is, you know, you can render and get oil out of it. So then I automatically, I gravitate towards trying to make an ice cream out of it or a mayonnaise. That always was something I would make as well. What got you interested in uh, pastry and ice cream? Because I believe I read that you don't really like too much sweet stuff, you know, as a personal taste. I don't, I don't gravitate towards uh, to sweet things, desserts in general. I went to culinary school for pastry. But it was mostly because back when I was a kid, 150 years ago, the pastry side was the artistic side and the, the culinary side was pretty, pretty straightforward. It, nothing had really moved in decades. So it was always like, you know, it was a little more critical. It was obviously a uh, faster pace, the culinary side and pastry was a little easier, not easier as, as far as technique goes, but easier as far as pace went. And uh, the plates were a lot more, uh, you know, they were more artistic. 
nowadays, the culinary stuff, you know, and I say, you know what I mean when I say savory and, and, and sweet, but now the savory stuff is taking on a lot of the pastry techniques and they have the same aesthetics. So you started your education in pastry in Johnson's Well, correct? In yeah, Rhode Island? Johnson Wales in Providence, yeah. Okay. It was only two years. It was, it was enough, I thought. You know, I think it's mostly um, learning what all the equipment is and some basic techniques and stuff that I, I'm sure I needed in life. But I, I look back and think I would have rather spent a bunch of money and went to Spain <laughs> and worked for free. <laughs> okay. Probably would have been better. But, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Okay. I did, however, get right out of culinary school and work for the greatest chef to ever walk the planet. So that was my, my kind of like school of hard knocks. Okay, so can you tell us uh, which chef you have oh, spent time yeah, with? I guess I left that part out. Jean-Louis Paladin. He's just recognized. Sounds French to me. He's very, very French. <laughs> very French. He was so French, he smoked two packs of cigarettes a day. Oh boy. Gauloise, um, Gitane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's known, I mean, just people just, when they hear his name, they, they're very impressed that I got to work for him. Uh, he was like a father to me. He taught me everything. Every, everything I learned at that point was from him. So what did you learn from him? It was mostly uh, uh, the appreciation for, for food itself. I can still hear his voice in, in my head whenever I try to take a shortcut. He was just a purist. If he was making risotto or something, you know, I just remember seeing he would get his, his face would be so close to that pan of risotto because he was just watching every grain of rice and his glasses would steam up. And it was just, it, there was no, no shorts with that man. I remember he, he used to yell at people. He yelled at everybody. I watched him yell at this cook once. You know, we were very busy. Like we, you just, you never had enough time. A, he would come into the kitchen and change the entire menu for the night. And you'd be like, oh, great. I'm, I don't have any of that. But, you know, we were always rushing around. And, you know, family meal, you know, you just try to get some food in your stomach because you're going to fall down if you don't. And he, I watched him chew out a line cook once for not appreciating the food that they were eating. Like, you know, just piling it on a plate and trying to eat it. And he lost his mind just because he couldn't wrap his head around eating that way, like not appreciating the food that was going in your body. And I was just like, you can't win with this guy. <laughs> you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. But like, that's just the way, that's just the way his head worked. Say, so who are the other chefs that you spend time with? My first job out of culinary school, actually, for John Louis was with uh, David Burke. Okay. At Park Avenue Cafe. And Charlie Palmer at Oriole. Okay. Did you spend time as well uh, in France and La Durée with Pierre Armé? I Arme? went to La Durée, yeah. Jean-Louis sent me there. Okay. Jean-Louis knew everybody who was French. I worked for Paul Liebrandt at Atlas and Rocco de Spirito at Union Pacific. And God, I'm old. And then Wiley. I think that's it. So what would be your advice for a young kid once interested to be in culinary or pastry and so on. So you just said before that you should have maybe spent more time in Spain and less than Johnson Wells. I mean, do you think that it's good to have a basic like education, culinary or pastry education, and then go into a stage? And It is good to have that, but it's just it's amazing what they charge for it, you know? And I don't think I've ever, I, I've had a very charmed life as far as food goes, so I, it's hard for me to talk to this, but I just don't think people care about, you know, culinary school to diplomas i don't think i don't i mean maybe in hotels and stuff and that kind of hierarchy but i feel like you, you got no matter what you have show whatever piece of paper you have resume whatever you're still gonna have to come in and sh show what you know so but how do you start with the first one who is going to take you for yeah, the I first mean, that's, time that's, in what, a, I, in a that's what i mean you have to that's why i'm saying if you end up in a 
Copenhagen and you're willing to work for free, almost anybody will hire you. Some of those places don't even hire you for free these days. You know, you have some real world experience in some of the finest kitchens at your disposal if you just have a little bit of money to pay for food and, and, and place to stay. And you can get a lot of food and shelter for the amount of money they charge at culinary school. True. They wouldn't be happy to hear me say that. Okay, so and then you're talking about Willie Dufresne, WD-50. So can you share a little bit of this experience? How was it? I mean, that was, that was it, awesome. One of the best decisions I ever made in life. I'd gotten out of the business, kind of gotten disenchanted with, with restaurants. And it must have been Atlas. It must have been when I was with Paul Lee Brandt. 9-11 happened and everything was kind of a mess. And I stopped cooking. The restaurant closed. So I was just kind of in between things and I didn't necessarily want to f fill out applications or let people know I was looking. So I was opening a bar and, uh, and that seemed to be, that seemed to be the, the answer to all my, to all my problems. And that just was <laughs> taking forever. Wiley called and he's like, listen, he's like, and I had met Wiley years earlier in Vegas. I had introduced him to John Louis and he opened up our New York City restaurant with us. So he was a sous chef for John Louis. He respected John Louis, but I don't think they, they, they didn't work the same way. So it, it, it was short-lived, but it didn't really matter because his father had started 71 Clinton. So he, was, he had to go down there anyway, help his father out, which was a great, obviously a great thing for him. And then, you know, 71 Clinton was doing so well. And, you know, they're like, oh, let's just let's do something a little bit bigger, a little more ambitious. And across the street, lease WD-50. Here we go. So he kept calling me and, and he really did call a few times. And, and I was just kind of like, I was on the fence and I really wasn't, I wasn't super excited about, you know, when you're out of the business for a little while, you get real lazy. And I was really lazy. I couldn't imagine, you know, 90 hour work weeks again. But finally, I mean, he asked enough times that I guess, I guess I said yes. I know I said yes. There. And we opened in 03 and it just was a whirlwind. Like it was just nonstop. It's an iconic name still today. I mean, when, when did he close? You know, 11 years after the three. Okay, so 14, something like this. Yeah. And in the book where it came out not too long ago, and some people still talk about it. So how was it? What was your experience there? The original crew was just spectacular. I, you, couldn't, you couldn't put this kind of talent together again. And it was not accidental, but just happened to be a, all these people were available and in the same area, kind of like when the Beatles started, just like, how did all these guys end up in the same town? So we knew what we wanted to do. We knew, we thought we knew the kind of stuff we wanted to produce, the type of aesthetics and the type of techniques. We just didn't know how to do them. It was like we had to teach ourselves. It was like, it was before anyone else was doing it, you know, so you couldn't really ask people questions because no one knew what we were trying to, you know, trying to get across. In our mind's eye, we, we had these ideas. We had to come up with the, the techniques and then, you know, that's when all the hydrofoloids kind of were coming out. Thankfully, Wiley was able to develop these um, relationships with the, the companies that produce the stuff. And they were very helpful. And they, even though they couldn't quite grasp what we were trying to do, because the stuff we were trying to do was a little bit new to them too. They were using these things and, you know, Can you give us an example? I mean, things like the mesocellulose, you know, it's like, it's a, it's a hydrofoloid that, that they, they use in, uh, you know, like probably like things that you don't want to, to burst, you know, like maybe pot pies or stuff like that. Things that, you know, like hot pockets, you know, things that you want 
you want when they get hot to be a little more liquid and to be gelled a little more when they're cold. You know, but we were trying to use them in restaurant dish applications. So they were very helpful. But at the same time, it was so much trial and error. But that was also kind of the more exciting thing because I'm not really, I don't have a science background. Wiley, you know, he's very, he, he can think that way, even though he didn't really have a science background either. But, you know, the trial and error and the, the, the note taking and the, you know, the diligence to try to get tinker with these, these recipes, formulas even, it was a lot of fun. And I think, I think we, we really came up with a lot of really. So you found your motivation there because you just talked that before kind of laziness and not doing anything and you were yeah, kind of. I didn't, I didn't think I had it in me, to be honest with you. Yeah, Wiley, with the staff there, just, we all just pushed each other, you know, it was just like, you know, it wasn't like a restaurant where Wiley was just telling us, you know, do this, do this and do this. It was, how the hell do we do this? And then we all kind of went off on our own little tangents and tried to figure things out and then brought it back to the table and then tinkered with them and with everybody. And it, it was. So you say just like the Beatles. So who were you? John Lennon, Paul McCartney, no. Ringo Starr? No, I was Yoko. You no, I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> what Beatle was I? I don't know. And the, and some of the guys we had in that kitchen, you know, were, weren't, they shouldn't even been in the kitchen. And they turned around and turned out to be some of the most articulate people we had. Even the wait staff, even the wait staff at WD50 was free to have thoughts, you know, when it came to composing a dish, you know, whether it be the plating process, you know, do you like this? No, then it didn't happen. You know, it, everyone can kind of try. So it was in. a collaboration? Yeah, it was an extremely large collaboration. But at the end of the day, some of the techniques are still being used. You know, a lot of them are still being used. So this is when you really applied like science in your creative process at that time? Yeah, I never, I never, never used science before that. Eighth grade was the last time I used science. Nothing in Johnson and Wales? No, no. I mean, I, unless you, I mean, baking obviously is, is science, but. You don't think about it as such, really. I mean, they—that's how they shove it down your throat. But it's, it's, at the end of the day, you're just like, eh, whatever. This was real. All the variables were super scientific at that point. So by doing what, reading books? Yeah, I mean, we were reading, we were reading books that were just painful, painful science books. And now, now you just have to buy a cookbook, and uh, they'll be like, oh, this—they the, break it down for you. And they, they, you know, obviously Harold McGee, you know, he was doing it. He was kind of making the layman understand, you know, egg proteins and stuff. But these books were just like, you would have been better off slamming it into your forehead than reading it sometimes because they didn't care where your brain was at. They were just... So it was reading the book, trying to understand was there... Yeah, reading the book, trying to interpret the book and then use it for your purposes, which weren't what the book was really trying to tell you. It was just telling you the brass tacks of how to deal with this. And, and that's when the trial and error... That's when we just wasted a lot of time. So let's talk a little bit about your uh, creative process. I want to understand where your inspiration, you know, comes from. Now, today's when we talk to um, ice cream and other fellows. I, I'm online a bit and, you know, I start, I kind of see what other people are doing and kind of get inspiration that way. Not necessarily in the ice cream world, but food in general, you know, going out to eat always inspires me somehow, even if it's one ingredient. It can turn itself into an entire composed dish. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is just reminiscing. Every now and then you reminisce and you think about a dish you did, and it might not quite translate into what you need. It's amazing where the mind, can, the you know, the thought process can go when you think of one simple, one simple ingredient. And then also, you know, as you start to comes back to trial and error again, you start to produce this stuff, 
and it could go way off where you originally started and it hopefully end up in being something that's delicious. You have a, something in mind that you have done, started in a certain way and then ending up being like completely different from the original thought? You can smell the, the maitake mushrooms that I'm cooking right now. So they, they're maitake mushrooms, obviously, just cooked in uh, sugar, water, burnt cinnamon, and vanilla. So, wait a minute. Mushroom? Ice cream? Yeah. Where are we weird. going here? It's weird. When you taste the mushrooms after they're confit or candied, I should say, they taste like candy. It tastes like mushroom itself is just a good medium to hold cinnamon and sugar. <laughs> they're not a tremendously funky mushroom. But... That ice cream went down a lot of paths before it ended up with the... Um, it's a malt maitake, so it's malt powder, malt ice cream with, uh, with, with salted peanuts and maitake mushrooms. And that started out as being a little more mushroom-centric. And then it kind of... I had to back it away because, you know, you, you need to sell ice cream at the same point. Okay. It's far away from vanilla, strawberry, and chocolate. So where the idea came from, mushroom? The idea came from, from dinner. <laughs> Eating, obviously, a savory preparation of mushrooms, because that's what most of them are. But noticing the texture and being like, I, I, when I eat things, I always try to figure out. A lot of things don't taste or don't feel right frozen. To, you need to manipulate everything you put in ice cream to be palatable when it's zero degrees. So water is obviously a big pain in the butt. It was recognizing that mushrooms inherently don't have, I mean, they, they can have a lot of water in them. But they, once they're dried, they, they have, still have a good texture and they're, you know, they're, water, they're free of most water. So I was like, if I can replace the water and the mushrooms with sugar, they can probably be a nice texture to eat frozen. I guess that's where that was a long story to tell you where that came from. But yeah, manipulating water is pretty much everything I do in life. And do you have inspiration that comes outside of food? Yeah, I mean, back when I was composing uh, dishes for a restaurant, architecture was always something that kind of would inspire me art and architecture just patterns designs the way things fall on each other you know as far as layers ice cream uh, architecture doesn't really play into that much anymore but the visual aspect is more and more important especially with people taking pictures and instagram yeah, this know. is still i mean you can obviously aesthetically like the colors are can play off each other well but it's still going to be a ball on top of a cone yeah but you have done some interesting stuff by adding layers and textures, I, I remember you talked to me about this uh, special season when you did something with... Um, oh, the cotton candy. The cotton candy, yes. You did the cotton candy on top of... That was very structural. I see. I can see that, yeah. I should bring that back. I forgot about that. See? You remind me of stuff. Exactly. See? <laughs> and I remember you told me a story. I think it was connected to that specific concept. So if you want to describe them, that would be great as well for people listening. But they had a story with Instagram and you had some people from Asia, I don't remember if it was Japan and so on, that put something you know, on Instagram and then it went viral. Can you tell us about that concept and the story? Because I think they were... Yeah, the cotton candy cone was um, something... So I, I've always... I, I, love, I, I don't love cotton candy. Cotton candy is just sugar. I like manipulating cotton candy. Normally, it really is just a mouthful of sugar, which is kind of gross. But if you add like oils and stuff to sugar, to sucrose, you can extend the glass transition, it's called. So glass transition is when the sugar melts and it spins out of the cotton candy machine, the heating element, you know, it goes a certain distance before it hardens again. Yeah, I was, you know, adding uh, pistachio oils and different nut oils to the sugar, 
which doesn't change anything but the glass transition. So you would essentially end up with a cotton candy that was felt more less brittle, more like um, fabric. You know, it was like a cloth. So it and it was and it had a little more. It had fat in it, but I don't think you recognized it. But it, the texture was fatty. So at that point, we had started doing. Uh, I think it was uh, smoked cotton candy. It was like a smoked oil that we would uh, wrap around. You know, a big tuft of cotton candy would wrap around the s'mores ice cream. So it was like a campfire kind of s'mores thing. And uh, and I yeah, someone someone people take pictures, and that's something that people obviously want to take a picture of because. Visually, it's like, it's like, wow, this is cool. And then when you bite into it and you see the transition of your teeth marks through this kind of soft con candy and then this ice cream, texturally, temperature-wise, it's just this, this kind of cool juxtaposition. And yeah, I guess it ended up in a magazine. It was a Japanese magazine. And I don't know if, I don't know if they always hang out on buses, but they just pulled out. It was a tour bus pulled up. And th- let me start by saying that the con candy cone wasn't fun to make. It was kind of a pain in the butt. You know, you had this huge apparatus in the back. I don't know why they make them so damn big, but it was always in the way. So you had to kind of set it up every time you got an order. I think, and they they were just like, yeah, we'll take, you know, we'll take 25 of them, <laughs> which was just, I must have taken me 30 minutes to make all of them. First guy is already melted by the time the last guy got his. <laughs> and he went on Inst- they went on Instagram too, correct? Yeah, yeah. That, no, I mean, it, that Instagram, I tell you, it's... It's a game changer. Yeah. Do you change your way of thinking about what you are going to do and to, to create in terms of concepts? I mean, as, as long, I mean, you try to, for as long as you can, you try not to give in. But at some point you realize the more aesthetic, the more obnoxiously aesthetic you make something, the, the more likely it is to be on Instagram a lot. And sometimes it's just against all your better judgment or morals to make some of these things that look so damn goofy. In the ice cream industry, the base is really, you know, key. So how do you develop your ice cream? Because I remember you said, hey, there's so many formulations based on the concept and you change your ice cream base. So how do you vary your ice cream base, you know, from one concept to another? And what's key in the making of, um, you know, a great ice cream? Currently, I probably have 12 formulations of ice cream that we make here. That's because, you know, we have, we make this, we make one base, which is the workhorse, which is, you know, you can add a bunch of stuff to it. You can blend peanut butter into it. You can, you know, you can blend malt into it. You can flavor it. It's pretty diverse. It's pretty, you know, it's fundamentally, you can do a lot of things with it, but that only goes so far. Then you start introducing, you know, um, for instance, the cornbread ice cream. You know, you can't just add cornbread to that plain base. It's just, you're going to lose a lot of ice cream and it's not going to taste right. So those have to be specifically formulated for the individual flavors. So if the sugars all change, the types of sugars all change, the amount of fat can change depending on if you're adding, you know, if it's a chocolate ice cream, you're obviously going to bring the heavy cream down a little bit, increase the milk. It's kind of a chess game. They can kind of change depending on the added flavor, which is an ingredient as well. So you have to kind of see like if you're going to add passion fruit juice to something or passion fruit puree, you have to kind of step back and go, okay, well, what is this bringing to the table? What do I need to do to defend, you know, what's in this product? You know, whether it be water, like if there's additional water, I, you know, I obviously have to, I have to, I have to bring up sugar to, to help with the freezing, moving the freezing point around. And that's really all it is, I guess, is moving that freezing point around. 
keeping it texturally the same as the other ice creams that are next to it. You know, you can't have one that's super soft and the next one one's super hard. You got to kind of think about the 10 degree scooping cabinet. Hey, Sam, while we are here, I, I think it would be great if we could do a little bit of tasting together. All right. Boom, here we go. I got some ice cream. Fantastic. The magic that. of Sam Mason. We have quite a few things here. Let's see. Let's start with this. This is, this is vegan ice cream, which I've gotten really excited about lately. It's coconut vegan, which is pretty simple. Most people do coconut. We also do oat milk. We do macadamia milk. But this is a, a magic chocolate, which is a chocolate and coconut oil. Coconut caramel, which is caramelized coconut milk. Vegan ice cream proved to be one of the harder things I've ever made. It, it tastes more like sorbet always. It's always got like that kind of water background. So I had to come up with a lot of ingredients to make the mouthfeel feel what I thought ice cream felt like. That proved to be a little more tumultuous test than I, I anticipated. But, but I think we're at a good place now with our, we're uh, actually getting ready to open the, uh, the East Village shop as completely vegan. Which will be awesome. It'll have always have eight different vegan flavors. Which uh, base you said you're using? So coconut. Well, we use oat milk, we use coconut, oat and milk. we use macadamia yeah. and almond. We have an arsenal of of nut milks. And do you see that you have to come up with different concept than the one that you use with the regular cow milk in terms of like the flavors that you associate with it? So it really doesn't matter. Yeah, I mean, well, see, the thing is, most people use coconut milk across the board, which I don't enjoy because I it tastes like coconut, and I don't think that plays into a lot of profiles. So we use the macadamia nut for our kind of, it's the more neutral flavor nut milk. So that's the one that we use for like the subtle flavors, the coffee and stuff like that. But for coconut, obviously coconut's perfect. Let's try something else. Let's, uh, this is caramelized white chocolate. It has uh, white chocolate chips in it, which are coconut oil and white chocolate and toasted almond. So how did you come up with uh, this idea? I'm not a huge white chocolate fan, but I like caramelized white chocolate. You know, you keep putting in the oven, put anything in the oven long enough and it's either going to be caramelized or burnt. So this one luckily goes to caramel and uh, okay. it's this really deep nutty flavor, which is very unlike is. Uh, white chocolate. So how do you do again? Like the, you caramelize the white yeah, chocolate it, it goes, in, it goes in a pan in the oven for, uh, you know, an hour at about 275 and it just starts to get that dark, rich color. I mean, you can't burn it. One of my favorite. Profile. And what do you have in it? Uh, what are the uh, inclusions? The white chocolate and the toasted almonds. And toasted almonds. Okay. And that's that's all. Wow. This is really outstanding. Yeah, I like that one a lot. You guys have to come to um, Art Fellows in uh, Williamsburg here and try that. This is one of my new favorites. It's, uh, it's just toasted sesame, but it's got a, a Nutella in it and like a sesame crunch. Like just a sesame brittle, I guess, is kind of the closest word. I like that a lot. There's a little bit of cardamom. Mm. I got that. I love cardamom. That's a big flavor, you know, at the moment. And you have um, a big hint of, of cardamom. That's absolutely delicious. It's once again, it's like they're not always the best sellers. So and again, so how did you come up with that concept of blending those ingredients together? Uh, I mean, that to me is a regional thing. Like obviously sesame and cardamom, they play well together in, in their uh, traditional senses. I think this all probably came from a coffee flavor we were doing for a while. Are you familiar with coffee? It's uh, yeah, so I think I think I started to narrow that down. I, we got really stuck on that condensed milk kind of vibe. I think that this was just a natural next step was to do a sesame flavor. With all those interesting, crazy combinations that you have, what are the most popular 
you know, of those flavors that are less your mainstream flavors. You remember? You know, it, it's weird. It's like you can't even predict it. Sometimes you think something's going to be a total just lost leader and it just, it hits its stride. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. It's like, it depends on the clientele, which changes a lot. And each shop is different. You know, one, this one shop will, will move sesame and one shop won't. It's neighborhood and clientele who some people are just less likely to gravitate. They'll, they'll get to vanilla. They won't even try anything else. They're like, they came. If you know what you really want, you come in, you just ask for it. You don't even have to try it. Some people will take sample the entire case and then pick something that they would, wouldn't have thought they would have ever got. The good points of sampling is you can, you, you know, you don't have to commit to something without trying it. And were you surprised and about like maybe one thing that you have done once and you didn't know if it worked and it became very popular? Do you have an example of something that strike you? Honestly, the, the, the chorizo caramel you brought up earlier was one that, you know, I put it in the case. I was just like, get a load of this, people. You're going to, you're going to send me hate mail for this one. And people still ask for it. So yeah, it's surprising. And some of them get like cult followings, you know, where it's not like a lot of it, but people are mad if you don't have it. <laughs> Like Which the, one? that trees okay about for Okay. So you have a tribe, you have a tribe around that <laughs> asking for that flavor. Uh what's next here? We have, this is the peanut butter s'mores. This is a flavor okay. we uh we actually made this the band L C D sound systems. This is like this is his James Murphy's flavor that we've co branded. He likes peanut butter. It's a s'mores. Yeah, that one that that's this one we like to have a peanut butter flavor in the case. You know, we do peanut butter and jelly a lot, which they can't be together in the same at the same time. So you kind of got to pick your battles with flavors like that as well. You know, it's more a bit more mainstream, obviously. But so how do you um, include like the marshmallow piece in there? And are they toasted or? They're burnt. We, they're blow, burnt. we, we actually blow torch them. We freeze the, my, the marshmallows with liquid nitrogen so they rock hard. And then we burn them so they don't expand. They stay that shape. Uh, and then we freeze them and they end up as an occlusion. What else is this? This is, I recently decided that we didn't have goat milk on the rest, on the menu this whole time we've been open. So we ordered goat milk and now. Sorry, sorry, hold on. You have done chorizo. I know. We've never done done goat milk. Different cheeses. I don't, I don't, I just, I looked down and I was like, goat milk. Why? We haven't done that five years later. (laughs) After 200 like flavors on the menu. (laughs) So this one's gently infused with uh, rosemary and it gets a Concord and salted walnuts. Concord, I'm a big fan. So why goat milk and Concord? I don't know. And well, rosemary. My, I mean, rosemary, rosemary and goat cheese, cheese was, yeah, an op- can, was obvious. Yeah. And then it needed it needed a, a sweet element. Sweet element with some acid, and uh, that's where that's where the Concord. I also had a bunch of Concord. <laughs> sometimes it's sometimes <laughs> you really do look to the fridge and go, I got to get rid of this stuff. How do what? How, where am I going to put it? And then it works out like this, and then set in stone. So this this is probably isn't going anywhere anytime soon. Basically, for this one, it's uh, so you have a good meal base ice cream, and then you have a swell of the Concord, absolutely, and the salted walnuts, salted walnut, and the raspberry is uh, sorry, the rosemary, rosemary just, is just gets introduced to the the goat milk uh, ice cream and then pulled out, so it's just gently infused. And then this is a sorbet. How is the the sorry the popularity of this one? It's insane. I can't get rid of it now. Uh, they'll they'll hang me up. <laughs> we don't want that. We don't want that. Here's a sorbet because we haven't done one of those yet. Lemon, ginger, turmeric. It just it seemed like a good cold weather sorbet. You know, it's like sorbets definitely take a back seat in the in the winter. So you have to come up with some flavors that people can kind of gravitate towards. I don't know why people think sorbets are colder than ice cream. They're not. 
but you know, I guess the, they're water based. So, so turmeric. Have you worked with turmeric before? Yeah, yeah. I'm a, I'm a fan of turmeric. There was a, there was a point in, when I was WD50 when uh, we had fresh turmeric, which I had never really played with fresh fresh turmeric, and I I just bit into it. I'm like, I'm gonna take a bite of this turmeric. What you don't know about turmeric is it will stain your tooth for about two weeks. <laughs> and I had this orange tooth that I had, no matter how much I brush it, but turn my toothbrush is orange. I could not, I, I essentially stained my tooth for like, it, and maybe it wasn't two weeks. It was a couple of days though. And it was quite embarrassing because it was my friend too. And I brought this out. This is something I made today, which we were talking about formulation. I've been trying to come up with a, a, an ice cream that's not sweet. And I, I think I found it to, to get that texture without sugar is almost impossible because sugar is a very fundamental ingredient. It keeps ice cream from freezing rock hard. So this is my uh, interpretation of what can eventually be. This is obviously no flavor. just tastes like salt and cream. I wanted te- This is a texture experiment. But this can also be now, it can be the foie gras. It can be, it can be things that I want to be. I just did a dinner in Pittsburgh at a, a friend's restaurant where we did the entire the entire menu had an ice cream component. So it was six courses of, of ice cream. The first ice creams obviously were very savory because they were with like squab or, you know, the fall ice cream was with squab, edamame. There was a green apple bonito sorbet. So we started off very savory and then we ended up sweet. I mean, you know, obviously we went through the transition of, of salty to sweet, but I hadn't quite figured this out yet before the dinner. And this would have obviously elevated the, some of the savory stuff, but I'm, I'm very excited about that texture. Ice cream business is very seasonal. So I'm guessing that you are on one end, as you were talking about the turmeric, lemon, ginger, sorbet that you have. You are trying to create, you know, new flavors for each of the season. But you have probably, I was as well looking at trying to do something which is counterbalance, you know, the whole seasonal aspect. So you had one concept that was the, um, the passport. Oh yeah, the passport. Yeah. That you did. So can you talk to us a little bit about this? That was, um, something I came up with, uh, Four years ago was our second year. You know, you start to see the winners. They drop off. They're not very busy. So we wanted to inspire business, if you will. And in order to do that, we just needed to uh, essentially create uh, a demand that was the passport program. We developed these actual tangible passports. They're these little folded. It looked just like a passport. I don't know. It could be against the law. You know, and you opened <laughs> up and had the monkey in it and our, the mascot. And, you know, you got... Every time you came in, you got a stamp, you know, and oh, I'm sorry. I kind of left something out. Every month was a, a different continent. First continent was Asia, Australia, you know, North America, South America. It was fun. It was fun for me because I got to um, utilize uh, ingredients I don't normally utilize or maybe have never utilized. And at the same time, it was a pain in the butt because, you know, you produce these for a month and then you get stuck with them. And the next month is a different continent. And you're like, what am I going to do with these things? So it had it had its inherent problems, and we'll probably do it again next year. It's just this year we decided to uh, maybe to not do it just because we're opening the new factory. And it was became very popular. People love the concept. Yeah, once again, it's like it's like I'm not necessarily going to bring these back. You know, they're kind of one offs. But I think a lot of them were pleasantly. But did it do the job? That's yeah, like, no, no, man. Bring the oh sales up, like, and there was a, there was a, a prize program. You know, the most you know, you get this many stamps, you get a T-shirt, this many stamps, you get free scoops. And man, we we would have a stack of about a hundred at the end of the year that were turned in for prizes. So it boosted your sales during like the the slow yeah, months. Absolutely. Okay, that was the purpose of it. So cool. 
So you are expanding your empire, Hot Fellows. So we are here in a store in Williamsburg. You have obviously another one in Manhattan on 4th Street. You have a concept which is now coffee and cream, you know, on Hudson in Manhattan. You have another location in Dumbo where you are introducing like booze, you know, like wine and beer, you know, and floats. The mother's like that, you know, you bring the kid in, have a little Prosecco, kid can have a little scoop. So yeah, describe a little bit what these two concepts are. In fact, the, the coffee and cream and then the, and the Dumbo one. It is, is great because it's, you know, it's, it, it generates coffee revenue all morning and then it kind of makes this weird switch to uh, ice cream revenue all night, which is a brilliant concept on our part. Not that we're first one to think of it, but we are the first ones to probably execute it. Then the Dumbo shop is still just called Oddfellows, but it's like you said, beer and wine. So beer floats, you know, Guinness stout and chocolate ice cream, wine floats. You know, we do a frozen Riesling in a frozen drink machine. Moving forward, I think we'd like to combine both those concepts together. You know, it's where you have that coffee revenue in the morning. And then always have that beer and wine kind of availability. So both locations are going to have no, them? no. But I think you know we're opening more shops. We we have you know we have okay. we have Boston coming up. We have Bushwick property that we're getting ready to turn into a factory, which is really? huge. Oh, yeah, yeah. I got a lot of dumb concepts in my head that I'd like to make happen. I want to do a fro- I want to do a, a fried ice cream concept. Yeah, you know, this fried ice just cream? fried ice cream. So what what would it be? What kind of concept with the? I, I envision it being like a kiosk in like a park somewhere where you just walk up and there's, you know, some guy sitting in this little booth and you order your fried ice cream and you just walk around and see you, you eat your fried ice cream. I also want to do a, um, thought of this last night. I don't sleep very much. Like a, an, uh, ultra premium, uh, you know, like a super, super high end, small, small, intimate shop, you know, silly leather couches and stuff. And every ice cream is priced differently because you know, something, you know, caviar ice cream costs more than Sicilian pistachio, which costs more than vanilla, which, you know, but each ice cream is, is priced according to the ingredient. Cause right now it's like, you know, when you're selling ice cream, you have to, you know, vanilla is very expensive. We sell a lot of it. So you can't, you know, you got to kind of, you know, move those chess pieces around in the case to, to make sure you're selling enough of an inexpensive ice cream. To, 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 profit, to, yeah. to counterbalance the expensive one. So where will be this uh, concept? You don't know yet? Oh, I don't know. I just came up with last night, remember? <laughs> yeah. We got, got a long way to go on that one. So you are going to open being of the year? Yeah, January in Bushwood. It's 8,000 square foot factory. It's, it's massive. It's my, the room we're sitting in is the size of one of my freezers. So I have two freezers the size of this room. <laughs> okay. Any ambition to bring your business outside of the US or at the moment you, you stay national? It's just so hard to babysit things when they're that far away. I could see a licensing thing happening. Once we start to fine tune this, this concept into where it's kind of a plug and play situation. And when is the next time we are going to see you on TV? Because you have done quite a bit of appearance and then, you know, there you were on Rotten and yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I, we're kind of working on a TV show right now. Okay. Which could be fun. Uh, we kind of did a um, a teaser reel. It's more of a talk showy kind of lifestyle thing. It's not like there's no cooking. There's no. It's just interviews and stuff with you only or with others. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I and I have a co-host, so it's just like we we're just like this fun play off each other dynamic, and hopefully have you know some famous to less famous people 
When is it? Oh, yeah. Some on your friends in the industry? Yeah, you know, try to bring in a lot, you know, industry people as well as bar people as well, you know, hospitality in general. Throw in some comedians. When is it going to be here? We don't know yet. We're still trying to fine tune the, the concept. Like I said, we, we've done kind of a teaser thing to where we've shown the dynamic, kind of pretended this is what we were doing. So now you need someone to pick it up and say, I'll pay for it. That's the hard part. Okay, Sam, I don't want to take to, you know too much of your time already. You have been very generous with it. So I have a series of rapid fire questions for you. Good God. <laughs> don't what, could go, what could go wrong? Nothing. <laughs> you are just a new dad now, so you experience yeah. like everything now. <laughs> Yo, man, I'll show you a rapid fire. You got to change a baby for your first time. That's about as rapid fire as you get. Oh, believe me, I have three kids, so I know. <laughs> <laughs> the distance. <laughs> so where do you go to eat and, and have a drink? I don't tend to leave Brooklyn as much as I used to, which is strange. Except to go see Santa Claus yesterday. <laughs> yeah. So it's, I try to eat like pretty local. Do you, can you suggest any place to go for a drink or for, uh, you know, Missy Robbins is, you know, one of the, probably one of the best chefs going right now. I don't know if you're familiar with Missy. She has a, uh, a new restaurant down the street here called, called Missy. It's in the Domino Sugar Factory building. It's just over the top, beautiful. And she makes some of the most intimate, good, like just, just makes you feel good Italian food. It's just, it's just unique enough, but it feels really sincere. And then that, that and a big glass of wine. What are you going to do? And for That's a drink, perfect. maybe at, uh, Lady J or? Oh, yeah. I have a bar called Lady J. I, I <laughs> drank there quite often. There last night. I was there the night before. I tend to go there a lot less now that uh, I have child. Where would you be if you were not a pastry chef? What would I be if I were not a pastry chef? You know what? As, as a, as a younger man, <laughs> I entertain the idea of, the, uh, of forensic pathology. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. I don't know if I watched too many, uh, too many crime movies. Yeah, I thought, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I thought about doing a couple of autopsies. <laughs> have you thought of writing a book? No. I mean, yes, I have thought about writing a book. Books, books are tricky. How come? I feel like books, they have to be really great to make any money. I feel like books are something you give your, your mom and your grandma on Christmas. You're like, here's the book I made. That's pretty much their, their gifts. You know, every now and then you'll find a cookbook. I mean, there's great cookbooks out there who, you know, are in their fifth run, which they're few and far between. I mean, yeah, I think they're, they're, they're uber time conservative. Uh, you know, they take, they take forever to make. You know, I don't know. I don't know if the world needs another ice cream book. If I did a book, I'd, I'd rather be kind of lifestyle-ish and kind of a little more all-encompassing than, than just like, but the publishers, when they want, they want a cookbook, they want the recipe on this page, they want a picture on this page, you know, changing that. That model, that business model, it's kind of hard. That's why all the Spanish guys are doing such great stuff because they, they just think about it differently. Even though I, not to say, I mean, if, if you have enough clout in the States, you can make whatever you want. So my last question, if you would, you would create a new flavor for your newborn son, what would it be? Oh boy. I don't know. He's a feisty little one. I, you know, I did, did just to, just to sidestep that, I can't wait for the first time he eats ice cream. That's my most exciting day. Absolutely. So which one are you going to uh, give it to him? What was he going to experience? I'm trying to shove every allergen in his body. I can't at this <laughs> point just to, just to keep him food friendly. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, he'll probably start with sorbet, right? That's just kind of like a no-brainer. Oh, just to see his little face. I don't even know. When, when can you feed a kid ice cream? I bet I can do it now, right? People are just like, oh, wait for a year. No. So no no concept? No? 
brilliant idea. I mean, for King Liam, what does King Liam get? He gets a, he's going to get a regal flavor. I just, I just haven't decided okay. how regal it's going to be. <laughs> you know, he's sophisticated yet whimsy. <laughs> and he thinks a lot. He, he thinks, thinks a lot. Oh man, he, all he does is pontificate on just life and what I'm doing. And he's good at the side eye. <laughs> like he'll just, uh, he's always just like, so this, you have to put all of this in an in ice cream. <laughs> yeah. Sass. <laughs> okay. Sam, thank you very much for being a guest on Flavors Unknown. I really appreciate your time and, and uh, your patience. Thank you. I look forward to see how, uh, how you edit this thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for listening today. No worries if you were not able to write down some information that our guest was talking about, because you can find all of those in the episode show note on flavorsunknown.com. If you have suggestions about who would be great to have as a guest on the show, please answer the question in the comment section of the contact page on the website flavorsunknown.com. I will do my best to contact them and try to see if I can get them on the show. I see you in two weeks. And until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people. You've just enjoyed another delicious episode of Flavors Unknown. Hungry for more? Hit subscribe. Tell us where you're listening from by leaving a review. And for social media and show notes, head to flavorsunknown.com.